Hello, welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset for another week. It's semi-finals week in Super Rugby Pacific, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Christy Doran, as always. Sam Bruce with you in the host chair. Uh, Christy, mate, a happy uh, long weekend uh, to you just gone. Um, a bit of r and I hear a bit of golf. Uh, I don't think you're going to be a late entrant for US Open qualifying just yet. Um, <laughs> plenty, plenty going on in the golf world over the last seven days as well. So if you're interested in that, I'm sure you've been following it. But we're here to talk rugby and we're here to talk um, the big decision of the weekend. Let's get straight into it, Christy. Uh, Artie Sevilla, try or no try? Technically correct, no try after given as a, a no, no try on the field by, by Nick Berry. But I think everyone would admit that it looked more a try than a no try. Was there compelling evidence to overturn it? I don't think so, but I do think that he probably scored it more than likely. And had it been given try on field by Berry, I think it stands a try every day of the week. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, just in and how Artie attacked that line, how low he got, I think in the all sense of logic, you would think at some point um, through that sequence that the ball at least grazes the ground. I mean, Luke Ryman did a fantastic job of, of at least getting what looked to be his arm underneath the ball. And that's certainly that from the available camera angles. That's what, you know, it appeared to show that he had been, in fact, held up. Um, now, it's one of those decisions, depending on where and who you support and, and where you live by a wider extension, I guess, in the, the New Zealand and Australian Super Rugby allegiances clearly that um, you're going to see this how you want to see it. Now, um, on Australia, it's clearly going to say, well, look, Barry made the right call, as you said. Um, he didn't see a grounding. He saw the ball up when he got round there, the other side of the post. Um, and on that basis, on that evidence, he could not award a try. So sent it up as a no try, believes the ball been been held up. And the available camera angles, of which there were probably two, maybe a third there, absolutely showed no evidence um, that that ball had been grounded. So, um, look, it's a decision that's continued to divide uh, the Hurricanes coach, uh, Clayton, uh, sorry, not oh, Clayton, Jason, Jason, Jason Holland. Holland, rather, Clayton McMillan, the Chiefs coach, of course, uh, was not happy um, and made the bizarre call that um, they thought they were, were going to have to battle the match officials by coming to, to Canberra. Um, and if you ask Brumbies fans, they're not at all a, a Nick Berry fan whatsoever. They feel like it, they've been dudded by him in a couple of Reds games um, previously, of course, with, with Berry having played for the Reds uh, during his uh, actual playing career. So, look, I it was a, a not a great end to uh, not that's probably the wrong way to put it. Uh, a, a tough end to a, what had been a, a brilliant game of footy, really, hadn't it? It's probably in the top three games of the season, if not the game of the season. You'd have to say uh, a gripping match from from start to finish. Um, Hurricanes got off to a fly. The Brumbies fought back and dominated the majority of that first half, and then the Hurricanes really came out of the blocks in the second and and turned the match um, their way. And they had all the momentum going into the the closing stages. Uh, the Brumbies managed to rally again. Um, it was back and forth. Some really good tries were scored. Um, it was physical. A breakdown contest was as good as you'll see. And um, I mean, it's always the way we, we we remember a couple of decisions like this in the last 12 months and we think of the Bledisloe in, in Melbourne and and then you and I about this time last year or a week later last year rather, when the Brumbies were what we agreed was probably dudded at Eden Park in Auckland in the semi-final against the Blues when Ben O'Keefe, um, who we'll come to shortly and, and a bit of a wider chat around refereeing perhaps, 
um, missed probably well, either missed or overlooked three blatant offences at the one ruck that we thought should have given the Brumbies a, a chance to win that game in their amazing comeback at Eden Park. So as is it in cricket and LBWs and, and inside edges and, you know, I guess that's been reduced somewhat with the TMO, but then cricket has its own dramas over the weekend with catches, hasn't it? So, um, but this one, it all levels out in the end. The Brumbies got dudded last year. They may have got away with one this year. Um, it's not going to make things any easier for the Hurricanes fans to bear. But, um, I mean, mate, how did you see the rest of the match otherwise? What did you really like about the, the Brumbies' performance? Before we go into the wider performance, I think even a, an example of earlier in the second half when Nick White's clearly played at as the halfback, he gets knocked off, the Hurricanes ball, get yep. the ball, they score moments later and then they score again soon after. That was a huge, huge swing in momentum. And so, yes, people get fixated on the core at the end, but there's always calls throughout the match that can determine the direction of the game. Um, it was a it was a cracker, and it was a real contrast between the poor defence early from both teams to the the brilliant defence of the last five ten minutes from both sides. We saw pretty soft passive defence early on. Uh, clearly, the Brumbies had targeted the Hurricanes as right edge, uh, and it, and it paid dividends. Three tries, almost identical fashion. Some, a couple of out-the-back plays. Uh, and, and, of course, Jack Debrusini running to the line himself, getting to stand up. Geordie Barrett it kind of turns his shoulders out uh, and, and has too much strength for, for Billy Proctor. Look, it was, a, it was a really encouraging game to see in terms of the fight shown, the characters shown from a Brumbies perspective, an Australian rugby perspective. They're going to have to go to a completely new level to take on the Chiefs. We'll come to that in a little while, but oh, awesome. And it was good to see you know, James Slipper lead the way up front. No Alan Alatoa. He did a great job up front. I thought um, you know, Ryan, uh, Ryan Lonig and Nick Watt had their moments, but, but Jack Debrusini to me was the star of the night for the Brumbies. He was obviously awarded man of the match, uh, but great options in terms of knowing when to play the ball, run to the line and also kick him behind. Uh, and, and I think we're just seeing that maturity of him after you know, almost 10 years as a professional rugby player. We're starting to see that. And he's got some of those hallmarks of what a test footy player is, a big kick, good passing game and an ability to run ball to the line. I was really impressed by him. And I think the two best matches the Brumbies have played this year on the weekend against the Hurricanes and way back in round two, first week of March, when the Brumbies got over the top of the Blues down in Melbourne. Jack Debrusini started at 10 in both of those, those games. Um, I would think that he's likely to start again this weekend ahead of Noah Lolaseo. And if that's the case, I really wonder whether or not even Orion Lonigan starts and you see Nick White come off the bench, add that tempo injection That'll be a really interesting discussion point as to whether or not he does that, uh, Stephen Larkin. My thoughts are if Alan Alatoa does come back, and I've heard that he is really, really likely to, that if he comes back, then maybe Nick White does come off the bench because he's got that leadership and capability to to inject off the bench. But, oh, good game, great game of rugby to watch. Really was, and uh, you mentioned there, Noah. Um, I think Stephen Larkin mentioned in the, the post match that there was a, a thought around his a head knock potentially last week, and he had to miss. I think it was the Monday or the Tuesday 
of training. Um, and that's when they made the decision to go with Jack Debrasini to get that extra extra run in, in the legs there and as a team and with, with Jack controlling things from number 10. Um, you mentioned there taking the ball to the line. That was really impressive, controlled things well. I must say that Noah, um, as it was pointed out to me yesterday, came on and late and made that clutch conversion from the sideline, didn't he? Which pushed it out beyond the penalty goal, which was a vital, vital conversion um, from out by the sideline after the, it must have been the Tom Wright try, I think, um, with the, uh, the bit of carry on after that as well. Um, he's, he's a clutch goal kicker, is Noel Olseo. He's done it time and time again, and it's probably the strength of his game, actually. I'd, I'd be fascinated to see if he can start to have that same composure and, and, and inject himself with ball in hand uh, that he does with the kicking team, because we saw it against France and test matches, uh, do it against New Zealand and test matches as well. Uh, it, it's impressive. And just back on Debrasini for the moment, he's an interesting case study, isn't he? Because he's, he plays that position and he's been, I guess, in this conversation that you and I have had a, a number of times around this this lost generation of Australian playmakers and the, the idea that we went from having sort of Quaid and Bernard Foley and Christian Lee Lofano to no one until, you know, this next group has come along, your Carter Gordons, your Ben Donaldsons, your Lolaseo, um, and um, who am I leaving out there? So Rajan Pazitao, for instance, and now Tom Liner, I guess, as well, um, coming in from a, a different background, clearly. But, um, yeah, Jack was kind of the, I guess, the the pick of that class that um, came through alongside Jack, Jake McIntyre, rather, and, and Mac Mason's another one. And we, we just felt that they, I don't know, they were caught, I guess, at the tail end of the Foley and the Coopers, who are both, you know, back now, clearly, and perhaps tail ends the, the wrong way to describe their their careers, but um, in a bit of that crossover period might be a better way to put it. Um, but for Jack to then go away, uh, went to New Zealand first and played a um, bit of Mitre 10 Cup with Northland from memory, got picked up uh, by the Chiefs off the back of that and had a couple of seasons with them. Didn't play massive amounts of games. So probably sort of played half the games either off the bench or, or with the odd start. I think probably behind um, is probably Aaron Cruden um, there for a couple of years and um, I think Deborah Senior was just there. I looked at this yesterday before writing a story, but 2019, but they, they and Cruden had come came back in 2020, but they still got Damian McKenzie there, who was really running the cutter either at first five or back at, at fullback. Yeah. Um, so and then heads off to Japan. So you, look, he's he's been away and, and we've seen it um in other places, probably more so in the forwards and increasingly now with Luke Hans Salakai Loto clearly coming back after a year away. Andrew Kellaway. Kellaway's a perfect example as well. So um we know it's not the worst thing in the world for these guys to to go away overseas and particularly I think as a playmaker, just important as a as a forward to learn perhaps that northern hemisphere style of forward. As a playmaker to be, you know, learn how to control the team in in different ways and at, when he was at the Rebels, Jack, you know, he, you wouldn't say he's behind probably a, a great pack of forwards that perhaps the Rebels have had this year. And you think, would he have been able to do the same things that Carter Gordon has done this year, playing behind the pack that they've had and some of the go forward um, that they had this year when he was there um, virtually straight out of school, I think in the end, maybe a couple of years after West Harbour here in Sydney. And um, look, he... He's got to be right, if not, you know, on the fringes of World Cup selection next year. He's going to add to that depth going forward, isn't he? Um, is he 27, 28? I think around about there. Um, that um, for the coming years, we know there's going to be 
injuries and, and we think that, that Gordon's probably in the box seat now to, to succeed Cooper and or Foley um, beyond this season. But um, it's great to see him come back and playing like he is. And and you'd hope that, um, you know, if he does get another start this weekend, that he continues that form. And who knows, um, we might see him in that in that gold jersey somewhere down the track. Yeah, it's a really interesting, uh, his, his journey throughout Super Rugby and, and as a professional player in, in Australia and a, probably shown at times the shortcomings of, of not having a, a, a tier three competition. And of course, he was spotted really out of that. And and I remember it was Steve Hoyles actually earlier before the season started. It might have been the week of the first match. Hoyles, he spoke about this guy was so far ahead of everyone else with that emerging pack with his skill set, massive bird passing game, that it looked easy and it came easy at times. But he also, because of the result, probably got judged harshly when things didn't come off and and and, and he struggled. But Hosey said, it wouldn't surprise me if we see him in higher honours later this year. And I still wonder whether or not, you know, he, he's a guy that can play a little bit of fullback. Can of course play ten, and when you're looking at how squad a Wallaby squad is is devised, there's 33. It's not very many at all. It's and you've got to start to be a little bit creative where players can play. They can play cover multiple positions, and and then in, on the top of that, there's a barbarians fixtures that are being arranged that will be heavily Australian influenced. I wrote about this on Sunday where Eddie Jones, the the master, the cunning master that he is, is set up three or four Australian coaches that are going to go coach a barbarian side against English, predominantly English teams ahead of their season later this year starting. And there'll be a bunch of Aussies there. And might they be the extra spare 10 or the extra spare hooker or seven that is going to be up in the north that if there's an injury or if there's someone that goes down or whatever it is, they're going to have match practice, match fitness under their belt. They can cross the English channel, end up in Paris, you never know. We saw that in, in 2011, of course, a couple of tens go down and all of a sudden Stephen Donald's playing fly half for the All Blacks and kicking winning penalties. So stranger things can have happened. I reckon he's got all the hallmarks for a test footy player. Big, big kick. That's so crucial come test footy. And he's got a great passing game and an ability to run to the line. But he's also, he's, he's mature. He's 30. He's, he's had the experiences of struggling. You know, being brought back down a notch, but he's so calm and composed out in the footy field these days, and you can see it. Um, good story. Hopefully, it continues. Big match, big decision, big selection decision this weekend as they take on the Chiefs. And we know that kicking, if the Reds have t- taught us anything over the, their two matches over the last five weeks, you know, five, five, six weeks, kicking is crucial. 95 kicks th- across the match, more than double any of the other th- quarterfinals. Uh, whoever kicks the smartest with the best kick case and has pressure and probably wins the breakdown, wins that game. Yeah, kicking a topical uh, point at the moment, um, put out there by one uh, NRL commentator in particular with uh, isolating that Reds-Chiefs game quite bizarrely. But uh, we expect nothing less from uh, that particular individual. Um, hello to Andrew, if you're listening. Um, yeah, mate, the, the, you're right. The, the Reds-Chiefs um, game, let's move on to that now, um, showing how how vital, I guess, a well-thought-out game plan can be now on two occasions, right? Like we saw it 
in New Plymouth earlier in the year, and you've probably got to tip your hat to to Brad Thorne and, and Phil Blake and the rest of the Queensland coaching staff for these two performances. Now, they didn't get the job done there in the end in Hamilton on, on Saturday. 29-20, they led. Sorry, they led. That was the final result. 29-20, they led uh, with that penalty, long-range penalty to Tom Liner, which was, you know, another clutch kick, as we said, from Noah Lollaseo. This was uh, similar, clearly, from, from Tom Liner. Um, they gave it a red-hot shake, though, the Reds, didn't they? Um, really played some good footy. Well thought out game plan, as we said, um, and James O'Connor just showing a bit of form at the at the right time of the year. Now, is it going to be enough? Potentially not, given what we think is going to happen around that that midfield and those tens, potentially. But um, after you and I, among others, sat down with Eddie Jones on Thursday afternoon, and and what did he say? I'm looking for guys who deliver this weekend, who play well in these pressure situations. Um, I thought that was a timely effort from James O'Connor. Um, another one from Sully Vinavalu, uh, who picked up the two tries there. Um, but did the Reds show, I guess, with, they've shown how you can beat the Chiefs clearly and take it to them. Do the Brumbies simi- simply mimic that game plan and put that into play this weekend? And is that the secret to beating this, this Chiefs team? I don't think you can ever just copy a plan because seldom does a side be able to replicate it. And often the team that struggled throughout that learns from it themselves a little bit and sees what they can do better. But you don't have to go far back from when the Brumbies did play the Chiefs. And that was only at the end of last month, which confirmed the Chiefs' top spot and the Brumbies confided to, in the end, fourth. Um, I think what we saw that night was that the, the Chiefs the Brumbies had so much ball and territory, but they couldn't break the Chiefs' lines. They're either one or two things, and probably both. They've got to be a little bit more creative with their game plan, particularly with the ball in hand. But they've also probably got to suck more numbers in and around the breakdown to allow or to have the Chiefs firstly put more numbers themselves into the ball around the breakdown, which would therefore open up space, hopefully, on the outside. And when you've got someone like Eleni Katow who just keeps seemingly beating the first man or being able to get the ball away offloading, yep. um, that's a, a really encouraging sign. <clears throat> of course, this is different. It's semi-final footy. You're going to be taking the points on offer whenever you can. Even times like just chucking it on the toe and a three points. We saw Noah Lollaseo in the past be able to drop fuel goals and do them really smartly, take kind of teams off. Uh, by catching by surprise, I I think the Chiefs. What we saw as well was they rested a number, pretty much their entire starting side, for the trip to the Western Force. The previous time that they did that was uh, when they came up against the Waratahs a week later. A handful of big names came back in, and their attack didn't quite fire. Yeah. And I think we saw a little bit about that against the Reds as well. It almost seems like it takes an extra week for these combinations and maybe the confidence out in the field just to get going because the Chiefs almost opened up the Reds at like a handful of times, but they just couldn't put it away or they didn't have the composure or we saw uh, narrower that little touch on, on Josh Fluke, just little silly things that times you probably wouldn't do if you've got the... Confidence and composure to know that everything's going to work out. Huge tackle from that man, Josh Fluke, there back in the corner to deny that try. And um, I think, was it was it Fraser McGright then getting in on that ball uh, at the breakdown? Oh, um, yeah. 
I think uh, 28 tackles. Did I see a stat that he made with, with no misses? Another timely performance there, you would think, um, given, uh, you know, the talk at number seven. Um, it was, yeah, the Reds, they, they really had that little bit of momentum late too, didn't they, after Linus' penalty goal? They went down, uh, got inside that that 22 and and looked to be really pressuring the the Chiefs' red zone. And, of course, then Sarah Uru just goes off his feet. Um, and it was only momentarily and was quickly back and, you know, in a, a kind of more of that um, that brace position, if you like, bridging position rather. Um, but Gardner pinged him and, and that was really the turning point of that second half, wasn't it? The, the Chiefs um, rolled downfield off the back of that and and scored that try. I think it was a Peter Gus Sawakula who went over uh, when they just got the roll on through the, through the reds, through the middle. Um, but um, yeah, you can only, I think if you're Brad Thorne, you could be just immensely proud of that performance. Um, you know, and a lot of talk about the the eight team final system. We've spoken about it previously at length. Um, I guess we got two pretty ordinary quarterfinals, and we'll touch on the Waratahs shortly. Um, but the two games, um, you know, certainly in, in Hamilton and, and Canberra were were brilliant games of footy. And um, you just say to to the Reds that they were hit by injuries even before the season started. They had obviously Luke Jones, who didn't play a minute at all. A um, few head knocks throughout the year, and then a couple of narrow defeats. Um, it was they just never hit their straps. But their two best games of the year were probably against the team that you know, the team that finished first, and their only loss of the season. And who may well go on to to lift the trophy. So you can take something from that. Um, but um, yeah, it's going to be a new man at the helm now. Brad Thorne has obviously finished up, and I, I guess a bit of a rebuild for them in in twenty four. Yeah, and really interesting what they do around the coaching. Uh, my understanding is that there are some big names in the mix, from Michael Checker to Les Kiss. To, it depends what they go down the avenues of a director of rugby or an out-and-out -out head coach. But what they want is not another rebuilding kind of mission, nor do they want another coach that's finding their feet. That, to me, rules out the vast majority yep. of Australian candidates. There's very few that have super rugby or top-tier professional head coaching. A lot of, lot of assistant coaches, uh, guys like Matt Taylor, who have been assistant coaches for 10 years all around the world, but very few head coach options. It might depend on what they do, whether or not it's a head coach or a director of rugby. That could also bring into the frame a guy like Scott Johnson, but but it's really crucial that they get the next decision right because they've had probably three good years in 25 years, 30 years of Super Rugby. Not good enough for a powerhouse that has great pathways, a really proud rugby state. Uh, so it's a big one. But the other thing that's interesting regarding that is a, a selection might not be made until even August. And we're halfway through June. I think we probably thought that a decision would have been closer uh, or if not, you know, the week after Super Rugby. But given that uh, Brad Thorne made the announcement back in April that he was going to be stepping away. So it does seem like it's a long, long day way down the road. But uh, they believe that the vast majority of their, their uh, player and retention has done. There's only a couple more places to be filled in their squad on their list for 2024. 20, so they think they're in a, a reasonable area there. But you're right. Lots of injuries, but it still did just show this underbelly that once you lose one or two of your top players, 
that sides can be brutally exposed. We haven't seen it with the Crusaders who just somehow continue to not just crawl along, but really thrive and manage to eke out wins when they probably shouldn't. We saw it on the weekend again, them going down to 13 towards the end, but they're not conceding tries. That just shows the culture uh, and it shows the game plan, shows working really hard for one another that some of the Aussie sides really need to start to adopt so that they can have that change mindset that just somehow manages to turn heartbreaking defeats into, into victories. And there's the nucleus of a good team there at the Reds, isn't there? All their frontline players, bar Taniola Tupa, who we know didn't play at all this season, like Luke Jones is off to off to Melbourne. Um, Tupu, that is. Uh, that your McWrights, your Wilsons, your Paisamis, your Vinavalo as of last week or the week before. Yeah. Um, your McDermott's. Tate, Tate McDermott, Tom Liner. These guys have all taken a bit of a leap of faith here, haven't they, to re-sign without knowing who the incoming coach is is going to be, whether they've been told that there's a short list of three perhaps behind closed doors, who knows? But um, they owe it to them to get it done sooner rather than later so that they get a bit of, you know, security of, of knowing what's going to be happening next year. Um, but, yeah, you, it's, got to, it's got to be an attractive role too for, for a coach, you'd think, to, to know that um, there is this group, Josh Flukes, another one clearly, I think Taj Annan, uh, the under-20s, um, coming through as well. So there's there's a real really talented New high performance group there. Um, yeah. Exactly what's what's happening at Ballymore. Um, you know, there's there's plenty to be excited about for the Reds. It's getting the right person to to take this team forward. Yeah, and the crucial element to that is is they've got to break bread and really come back to the drawing board with player agents, and that includes Anthony Piconi. Uh, whilst there is that rift and the amount of talent in Queensland predominantly Queensland-based talent that continues to be siphoned down to the Rebels or indeed overseas, some to the Brumbies, they're just shooting themselves in the foot, the Reds here. And guys like Harry Hawkins, who could be absolutely a world beater, we saw glimpses of it just recently for the Barbarians World 15 game. Uh, Isaac Lucas is another one who's, I'm not quite sure if he's, he might have spent a bit too long overseas to be a world-class 10 or 15 in Australia, but he's certainly got some amazing capability about him. But there's just too much talent that's been lost from Queensland. Guys like Lanny Katow, Noel Osijo, all these sorts of guys, Isaac Rodder, um, they, they should be playing for Queensland, the vast majority of them, their local talent. Uh, the Brumbies have always picked up good players. Tom Banks is another one from seven seven years ago or so, but they've got to break bread to 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 get back into the running and the reckoning. I think. Well, Lucas and, and Hawkins have certainly got to be uh, in the sights of the Japan Rugby Football Union as well now, right? They're probably closing in on their eligibility, um, so you don't want to see those guys in the red and white. But that may well be the case, as you say, if. Um, Perhaps uh, bridges aren't mended there uh, at the QRU. Um, all right, from one big state to another, Christy, uh, the Waratahs, um, well beaten on Friday night, the first of the quarterfinals, 41-12. Um, this is a, an, an odd kind of game. They made a really good start, got the dream start really, didn't they, with, with Ned Hannigan uh, scoring that try off that kick that Parisi swallowed up and, and broke through. And we're in this match at halftime, I think it was, what, 17-7 at, at halftime to the Blues. They had a couple of other opportunities 
to score. You think about the Dylan Peach muff put down. Um, you know, as the we speak about it time and time again from a Wallabies perspective in Bledisloe's when you go to Eden Park, you have to nail absolutely every important moment in the match. Otherwise, you're just not going to be in the contest. And and this was another case of that. Had that try been scored, or perhaps you only go in down by five points. They had another really good period after halftime. And then I think it was Harrison Goddard through about a three-man cutout to a winger who was on his own and isolated and then kicked the ball away um, down the touchline um, to a, a waiting Blues uh, back three member who then swept downfield. And before you knew it, that game was gone. Like it was, it was just a couple of really big moments in this one that the Waratahs mishandled um, and they paid the ultimate price. Like it was um, yeah, disappointing after the start that they'd made. Yeah, 17-7 at half time. And to me, the five minutes either side, they're always spoken about the five minutes either side against New Zealand teams, but particularly at Eden Park. And you get Nepo Alala, who, uh, you know, the Blues probably bombed a chance a couple of minutes earlier than that, but, but he manages to crash his way over. And it goes from uh, it goes from 10 points to seven to 17-7. And you just thought... Blimey, that's a huge blow on the stroke of half time. And then when it just meant that they had to be the next to score, they weren't. Ricky Riccatelli scores five minutes into the second half. And then the game's, I think, basically done there. 45 minutes into it, it's done. And then, of course, Zan Sullivan scores after 52 minutes and the game's very much sewn up. Yeah, you're right. It just, it was a bit fortuitous, but it was very well taken. Ned Hannigan's try, how about that hand that he picks and plucks out the ball from from uh, Parisi? But you've got to take that from from Dylan Peach, and he knew it. You saw his face and his jaw just drop uh, as, as he should have been celebrating uh, out on that left wing and that left touchline. So it, it, it probably summed up the Waratahs' year. Uh, not bad elements at times, but the collective just wasn't good enough. We saw Mark Nwanganiduasi play the house down, probably one of Ben Donaldson's better games too. Yeah. Um, his kicking behind for Dylan Peach in the 70th minute was a beauty. Uh, good heads up rugby there, but too little, too late. And we saw uh, it was just clunky throughout the game, needless penalties. The scrum didn't operate to fruition. And of course there were some late changes and, um, uh, late changes on paper, they were very much the changes that had been telegraphed way yep. back from Tuesday. So the Waratahs weren't caught by surprise by the late shufflings there. But, yeah, not good enough, really. And and not surprising, I don't think, in the least. Uh, I, the thing that I probably want to draw attention to, which I think is, is unfortunate, is is Michael Hooper's lack of effectiveness there on, on, the same on Friday night. And I wrote about it today and I led my story on it. I, I went back and I analysed his game and all of his involvements. And there was very, very few positive involvements. One or two ball, uh, with, with the ball, which we've always come to expect, but they were out in the fringes. But he really only hit about three or three racks in there that he kind of went looking for the ball and got he was nowhere near any of them at any times. And a couple of times he got bounced in contact defensively too, which is not something we've always been accustomed to. We've always seen the hoops have that real great leg drive to be able to, even if he gets bumped away, come again. We didn't see it 
And that's a huge concern for me, the number seven jersey for the Wallabies. There's concerns everywhere, really, from two to seven to 10 to 15. But seven has always had that attachment to it, hasn't it? The great jerseys, the great players, the George Smiths. That's what we were talking about before, yeah, previously. Yeah, and his lack of effectiveness there against a pretty good New Zealand side, but not nearly the pack that the Chiefs have, who have got, I think, the best pack in, in, in Super Rugby at the moment. The fact that he didn't get close to a ball, he doesn't rove around hunting for it. He doesn't have that same that same uh, uh, awareness or that instinct that guys like Fraser McWright do, or certainly now Luke Reimer as well. Uh, that to me, you're going to have to get some ball. You're going to have to contest, and you have to get uh, at a World Cup and. The fact that he's not doing that at the moment and doesn't really look like getting close to a ball, that's the concern. Just thinking about it from a wider Wallabies perspective, and we'll come back to the Waratahs and moving forward for them in 24 shortly, but if you look, you, you think probably that McWright and Hooper are, are there as the, the rusted on sevens. Now, you can't take a third number seven who's a number seven to a World Cup, can you? We we saw it in 2011, I think it was, when, when Robbie Deans only took David Pocock and didn't have a backup. and I think yes. it might have been Ben McCalman or someone was forced to to play seven in that game. Um, but at the moment, the way, yes. the way the game is being played at the test level, they don't either of them don't seem that to be that right fit. It's kind of square peg in round hole sort of stuff, right? Um, and you just wonder if there needs to be a bold selection, um, or if there might be a bold selection. We we know Pete Samu's versatility is obviously a huge advantage and his ability to cover six, seven, and eight. Played seven, I think, in, in Melbourne last year, wasn't it, for the for the Bledisloe and maybe again the following week in in Auckland. But does this suddenly bring in that bigger body like a Luke Reimer, like a Jerome Brown, perhaps even a, a Rory Scott who's drifted in recent weeks? Or if you play a really big six and eight and then you really hone in on what you want Hooper or McWright to play in that number seven role, is it McWright making 28 tackles a game, as we said, for the Reds and trying to get on that odd ball. Is it Hooper in those wider fringes where he can be most effective and his support play? And McWright's very good at that as well. But to me, we just, the, this, the, the, the two um, groups, if you like, of, of sevens. And I don't think there's one that's got that full rounded ability at test level right now. Um, and perhaps there needs to be a, a bold selection um, at some point for Eddie to to have a look at Jerome Brown or Reimer or, or even Pete Samu again in that seven jersey during the rugby championship. He said to us on Thursday that there's not going to be too much experimentation through that period. Um, it's going to be a really interesting one to follow, I think. Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, Jerome Brown doesn't qualify now. And, okay. and it's because I think he went over back home for a short period a couple of years ago with injury and he spent the, uh, a reasonable amount of time there without it being a year or anything. Uh, so, but the other thing is with Jerome Brown, he he was he looked a star in the making in 2018. I think it was when he when he debuted uh, for the Brumbies. Had an unbelievable game against the the Stormers in Cape Town, and you thought far out. If this guy becomes Australian eligible, he's just a big body who's good on the ball. But I don't think he's nearly been as effective over the last year or two. Um, Luke Reimer, great awareness of being able to sniff out a ball, but uh, is he 
going to win too many collisions at the moment. I'm not too sure. I don't think so. But he's 22. It's amazing. He looks like he could be in his late 20s. He's a bit of a grizzly bear, but no. Um, I, I think that it'll be interesting to see what the combination of the balance is with six and eight. I think Valentini's certainly there, whether or not he's eight or six. Lange Gleeson could be there, or does he go with the biggest six, someone like a Lucan Salakai Loto? Who knows? We'll find out more in the coming coming weeks. But... I think there's some real issues, some real worries around Lange Gleeson's durability. We saw him injured again on the weekend. I've got concerns that I, I don't think he goes the distance for a World Cup. Yeah, and that and that could could be right. You got, obviously they're going to have to pick and choose their moments about when they have these players run out. Uh, it's a fair fair point that you make. We, we saw him struggle a little bit off the moor after going down with some form of injury. Didn't really seem like he added any impact there whatsoever, but he has certainly been the most explosive eight in Aussie rugby this year. Harry Wilson, I think he's had a couple of good weeks. Uh, looks like he's more durable than Gleeson at the moment. I, I think we need to see Mick Wright have first crack against the Springboks, see how he goes, because I don't know if I've ever seen Pete Samu have anywhere near the same effectiveness as a starter than as a finisher. I've never seen him in international rugby and perhaps even at the Brumbies and super rugby level. Scott Robertson used to play him off the bench, had a brilliant role, niche role, 30 minutes. He's not a, he's still passive in defence. He doesn't Make real sting, stinging shots, and he's not a he's not a ruck hitter again, is he? he likes no. to hang out in the tram tracks on either side of the field. No. Yeah, and it, and it's the same with Reimer. He's had a couple of opportunities to start in that seven jersey, and he's never been as effective as he is off the bench. Rory Scott's someone who I like. I actually I brought him up to Eddie Jones on 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 Thursday, and and he said, "Well, mate, he can't even make the twenty three at the moment." I don't necessarily think that's how Eddie Jones sees him, but interestingly that the Brumbies didn't have him in their 23 on the weekend. I, I like him. I think he's a really talented player who's can play six, can play seven, a bit of a baller, uh, but he's young and he's growing, he's developing all the time. But that's a it's a big, big, uh, big, big issue for Australian rugby because you, you compare Sam Kane, who's massive as a seven, so hard on the ball, like a warrior on the Field. And then you've got Artie Severe or Dalton Papalee. He's just got leg dry for days and so ferocious in everything that they do. Uh, I think that's a massive area for Australian rugby, which we've got to sort out sooner rather than later. Yeah, going to be fascinating selection, that one, uh, along with a couple of others, as you mentioned, for that game. In Pretoria, which is creeping uh, up now, just uh, four weeks away, really, um, on the calendar. Uh, all right, let's, let's jump back to the Waratahs. Again, um, now the big one this year was clearly the loss of, of Angus Bell in, in week one after, I think, barely 30 minutes there at the Allianz Stadium. So much of their game, their, their go forward, their carry, their front football was going to be relying on Angus Bell through the middle of the park, right? Um, and he had shown it before he went off that game, made the break that gave um, Max Jorgensen the chance to mark his debut in such style under the post there. And they, they just never really could. It was always a slog for them. Even the games that they won, they, were, they did they had to do the hard yards. They never really got a, a flow on through the middle of the, the paddock. Um, Italian Seu was a good pickup, clearly, but he's off again now. Um, they've got the lock coming back from, from France. Is that 
100% confirmed? There was a bit of conjecture mm. around that he might be staying on. No, I believe it is confirmed. I think he's one of the issues when you bring him back to players to Australian rugby is the cap doesn't allow you to bring them in early. So he's going to be sticking with Clermont. I think he's back in Sydney at the moment. He'll be with Clermont up until about the end of November and he'll come back after then. But he's probably still a year or two away before he starts to get into his mid-20s, readjust to Super Rugby, that pace, the differences there. So I don't think you can expect um, the best of, of miles uh, in, the, in the opening weeks anyway. Uh, we look at the other, obviously, Michael Hooper's going to be going to see you, as I mentioned. Um, so there's a couple of holes to fill there. Charlie Gamble, you would think, will, is a natural to go straight into that that seven jersey. He had an injury himself this year um, and, and really probably didn't get back at the opportunity to get back to his form from from last year. Clearly, Lee Gleeson, as we mentioned, really came on. And then there was injuries throughout the year in the backs as well. Both Barisi and Fichetti spent time on the sidelines. Mac Jorgensen, clearly... Um, Peach was slow to return at the start of the year, so it was it was tough for, for Darren Coleman. It's no excuse though, really. Um, they target a top four finish. Um, that's where you and I both put that question to Paul Dawn at the start of the year, um, and his answer was that yeah, given the roster and improvements on last year, we believe a, a top four goal should be you know the results. Um, they didn't get it. Uh, Coleman's probably. You know, he's not going to lose his job, but he's got one more year to take this team forward or, or that's going to be curtains for, for him as well. And it's not going to be easy. Um, ben Donaldson uh, headed west, we believe. Uh, clearly, that puts Tane Edmed in the box set at number 10, young Jack Bowen coming through. The under-20s will be another option next year. Uh, Teddy Wilson comes in to provide cover for, for Jake Gordon, who, of course, missed the game on the weekend um, through that head knock suffered off the bench, ironically. The week before, um, so yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we've kind of summed up the Waratahs' season already with that game against the Blues, as you said. But um, do you expect them? Can they be better next year? Is it just on Angus Bell to come back and, you know, take this team forward, put them on his back, so to speak? Um, or, or do we kind of feel that the Waratahs are a bit of uh, a bit of uncertainty ahead and kind of in a similar zone again next year? Yeah, I, I don't think we'll see them be world beaters next year. Certainly, I don't see them being a top two or top three. They just, yeah, the, the clunkiness in attack. I think they'll have some hard conversations around their attack and what went right and what went wrong uh, because they took a long, long time to get going. Angus Bell, I think, like with the Rebels and Taniela Tupo going down there, if they stay fit and they're on the field, they'll be, a, they'll be there for a long time. The, the Tars have actually picked up another prop uh, and and he'll he'll be joining them. A fair bit of experience played at, at Saracens. Uh, it's been part of the La Rochelle, but hasn't really got on the field. Um, so yeah, if they if they have their top five there, you know, Ned Hannigan, Jed Holloway's uh, who have re-signed, that that can only be a good thing. We saw Hannigan spend a fair bit of time on the sidelines, similarly with Lockie Swinton. His kind of career is almost at crossroads, and yep. and it's and it's about now where they can go either way, and they can fulfil that potential. And if all those guys can somehow fulfil their potential, then then they're going to be within a chance because they've actually got some some really good players, well suited to Super Rugby. But they've all got to look at themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, are they doing? Is it enough? And 
at the answer to the moment is probably not, but Max Jorgensen, huge plus, huge tick for the year. Teddy Wilson, big tick coming through. Uh, I'd love to see more minutes shared there. You can't just be having Jake Gordon play 70 minutes. Teddy Wilson's got to be playing half an hour a game. Uh, it's as simple as that. We've seen it for years. The Highlanders do it so well. Brumbies earlier this year. Brumbies have done it this year. Uh, you've just got to do it. If you don't do it, you balance. Uh, when injuries pop up, it doesn't allow people to have the time, the space, the avenues. And we saw it with the conundrums with the 10s for years and years. It just loses this huge underbelly and of work underneath it. And there's just this massive gulf that's left as a consequence. So I, I think there are some positives to come out of the year, but but unless they really address some of their core issues, they're, they're not going to be any higher than they were this year because we know the class and the talent in New Zealand and the program that Brumbies typically run, but the Brumbies themselves are going to face some challenges now with guys moving on like Dan Palmer and Laurie Fisher that have been there for forever. So uh, a really interesting time in Aussie rugby. Just before we, we park this completely, Christy, it struck me watching... Uh, the Brumbies game uh, on on Saturday night. After watching the the Waratahs and, and Blues on on Friday night, around um, how different referees referee games differently, and how important referee study is going to be for coaches at the World Cup this year. Um, just the chalk and cheese between O'Keefe and um, sorry, it was Angus Gardner, um, rather more in the in the Reds Chiefs game, and how they have focal points. They obviously have. I don't want to call them pet hates, but they're areas that they seem to be absolutely honing on uh, at the breakdown. And for Ben O'Keefe, that's not rolling away. He gives you absolutely no time at all to get out of the moment you're caught. And even if you're caught by uh, an opposition player putting the leg over over you to, to trap a player in there, um, there's no leeway for that whatsoever. If you're lying around that breakdown for you know more than a, a second or two, you're gone. Whereas Gardner on Saturday prepared to just give that little bit of leeway and more likely to say, look, the ball's there. You can get that ball rather Ben O'Keefe. If you're delayed for an instant, then you're gone. And, and just how important, as I said, that, that each of the, the referees on that panel, I think this is there 10 or 12 of them in that who have got games at the world cup this year. Um, and I'm sure all the coaches will do this, but your ability to, I guess, focus on that in a match week is going to be somewhat limited. You've just got to go in with that mindset from the opening whistle, right, that if it's Ben O'Keefe, I make a tackle, I've got to be out of there like that or I'm gone. And um, the study that's got to go into it and and the players to, you know, make those adjustments, not be it, you know, clearly they don't have much time to rehearse it, but just that mental adjustment for matches for particular referees is, is hugely important. And even for Nick Berry, we saw on the weekend, I think it was Nick White was blowing up, going, hang on a moment, like how have they got a penalty here? But it was clearly Nick Frost just stood up at the time that uh, it might have been Ratima was was passing okay, yep. before. Um, but, but, but Barry doesn't like the fact that if, if players are going to just throw the ball and just milk penalties. And similarly, Angus Gardner, as you said, uh, doesn't like players being trapped in there and, and, and trying to milk it there too. So... Um, but he, but Barry's generally speaking pretty lethal around the ruck, and we saw a lot of penalties early on blown. We saw it, and we saw as a result guys take shots at goal, um, and and we saw you know the it's a great way to be able to tick the scoreboard over and over, and that's another thing that's going to be crucial come decision makers. And speaking of decision making, what about 
Ryan Lonigan's decision to play on quickly that led to the try for Tom Wright. Really interesting there around the tactics of that, but going choosing between set piece, shot at goal, or playing on really fascinating times. And it's these, you know, the people that make the decisions, the leaders within it, they're they're often the guys that divide opinion. Uh, and that's why they get paid the big bucks at times as well, is because they do do that. But really interesting times. Uh, this weekend as well now, I, I know that we've, we probably won't talk in great depth about Fiji and, and the Crusaders, a bit of a you know, fair bit of predictability and inev- inevitability about that, I'd say. Uh, Crusaders way too good, weren't they, Sammy? They were, and you, you fully expected that. Um, shouldn't take anything away from Fiji making the, a, a bloated playoffs, let's call them, in their, their second season, uh, and clearly a completely different team at home to what they what they were in the road, particularly in New Zealand. So it clearly gave the, both the Waratahs and Brumbies a really good run in Australia. Um, but, yeah, you, you just always felt this had a inevitability around it. Um, you mentioned they went down to 13 um, players late, but they yeah, they had this game way inside, you know, 15 minutes really, didn't they? Shot out to that 21-0 yeah. lead. And it was always going to be a long night for for the draw from there. And you just marvel at their ability to to get it done. You know, year in, year out, the Crusaders, um, clearly they've got added motivation this year for Scott Robertson and Richie Maunga, and, and as confirmed a couple of weeks ago now, that Sam Whitelock, who's battling a bit of an injury at the moment and uncertainty around whether he's, he's going to get back. Um, they've also had a number of injuries, but you mentioned just their amazing depth to to wheel out guys and who've either come through, you know, usually the Canterbury lineup clearly or Tasman um, to the north of the Canterbury region there and the, the Mitre 10 Cup. The players that they picked up from from both those teams over the years, um, it, it's just it's got to be one of the, if not the world's great rugby, you know, regions, right? Like the the talent that comes through there and their 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 longevity at the top of of not only you know Super Rugby Pacific for for the two years, but um, previously Super Rugby before that, and had that gap under Todd Blackadder that where they didn't win any trophies, but they were certainly semi finalists throughout that period, finalists against. The, the Reds and the Waratahs as well, you remember here in Australia, and they were only, you know, the proverbial bees away from winning those as well. So, um, yeah, it's – and they just seem to peak at the right time, right? They know how to win big games of footy at this time of year, and um, it's the Blues heading south uh, on Friday uh, for another instalment of that great rivalry. So I can't wait for that one. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a couple of cracking semifinal matchups. Oh. Look, it's hard to separate, given the injury concerns with the Crusaders, it's almost hard to separate who's going to win that one. It's really evened up. I think the Crusaders just, just their ability to win. I think the Brumbies, yeah, they're in, it's going to be a huge game. It's They're going to have to play the absolute best. So I just think the Chiefs back row stocks and the fact that they'll push last week so heavily and um, how many... How many game changers are in that lineup from the Retallics to the top Yahoos to the McKenzies? I, I think they'll be too strong. Uh, but it's a great opportunity for the Brumbies and and hopefully from an Australian perspective, they get across the line and they're able to really make a fight. But you just look at that front at that Chiefs back row and they're back tight five forwards. And I just think, oh, they're 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 a class above. You're gonna be really, really tough. To beat. Uh, all right, mate, before we, we wrap up, um, as we mentioned a couple of times through through this episode, that um, we had, a, I guess, a, a casual catch-up with uh, Wallabies coach Eddie Jones last 
Thursday afternoon. Um, probably exactly as I expected. Eddie kind of came in all guns blazing and and put the heat on us, the journalists, and there was about seven or eight of us there, asked us a few questions and, and made a couple of points of which we responded kind of a little bit curiously, um, making the point perhaps that we hadn't been hard enough or on Australian uh, rugby players in particular, and we all kind of looked at each other and thought, ooh, you clearly haven't been reading too much, Eddie, over, the, over your time away, because I think each of us here have, have taken a, uh, a shot or two at them and um, certainly issues around discipline and, and nailing pressure moments. But um, there were a couple of little nuggets of, of information through that, uh, I guess, about an hour-long sit-down in the end, wasn't there, around the timings of his squad namings, how much experimentation or lack thereof there's going to be during the rugby championship. Uh, I asked him about Carter Gordon and what he liked and he compared him to, to Butch James, which is a really interesting kind of comparison. Um, but I guess, mate, what were your major takeaways from that and, and, and how much do you trust what Eddie gave us during that period? Well, I don't really trust too much, but I think a couple of things, he, he does put the onus on back on you. He wants you to make decisions and come up with them, but if you're not right, you don't have the right answer, then he's not going to respect you very much. But I think he's always open for the ideas and we saw that. We saw a bit of a master of mind games and psychology about certainly turning the focus back on you I think we we're all caught off guard a little bit not necessarily knowing what to expect and maybe we thought a few other subjects might be brought up but but they probably didn't oh look he's impressive isn't he and he's a guy that is a completely different demeanor uh to Dave Verney uh had the opportunity to catch up with him at times and on tour and lovely man yep. um but he but he wasn't necessarily ever going to uh, come at you too hard and interrogate you almost and see what you think. It's a completely different way of coaching and seeing the game, I think, than, than Dave Rooney. Uh, but, but I loved it, enjoyed it. And I think it just sets it up this year about what's ahead, um, the road, the Bundy road at times when, you, when you're dealing with a coach like Eddie. But it, he's exciting and you can see that infectious kind of energy and, that he's got. Uh, and, and I've always kind of seen it. I think it's great that he's back in the game, fascinated by some of the, uh, his selection. I think it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be crucial, uh, as always defining. But you're right. In terms of when he announces the World Cup, he kind of hinted that it might actually even be before the Burslow Cup so they can really <clears throat> focus in on the core group of players that will be going there. Yes, there might be injuries, but... I want these 33 to know that they're the guys that are going. So it's a, it, it really drives home the importance of, uh, of nailing your opportunities when you get them because you might only get one. And for some players that are already up in the sanctuary, um, sanctuary cove at the moment that are training, it's important that they take every opportunity. So, yeah, I think we'll see the, the rugby championship squad announced the day after the Brumbies. Uh, whether or not they, if they get knocked out this this weekend, we'll probably see a Wallabies squad on Sunday or Monday. And similarly, if they make the final, then it will be the day after. So the clock is ticking, and uh, we're not far away from a Wallabies squad, which is really exciting. Yeah, and uh, those players who had their super seasons wrapped up, clearly the, the Waratahs and Reds as of the weekend, um, as you say, now on on really on borrowed time to make any impact, and it's going to have to be on the training paddock at, at Sanctuary Cove or. Um, we don't think there's going to be too much experimentation or change from that Springboks to 
to Puma's game. There might be a little factoring in the travel demands there, but um, yeah, it's it's really you know time's almost up, isn't it, for these guys to have made an impression on Eddie? And you just wonder if timely performances from Sully Vunivalu on the weekend, and perhaps lesser extent James O'Connor, what that might have done, even though there are uh, this fair bit of competition in that ten. Uh, 12 kind of makeup. Um, but yeah, fascinating, fascinating, like a couple of weeks ahead, really now, isn't it? And then you, you suddenly, we're going to park the Super Rugby season really quickly and and straight into that rugby championship. And um, we'll all be up in the middle of the night. I haven't actually checked what time that kickoff is in Pretoria. But um, yes, uh, massive intrigue around that first game. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's just around the corner. Tess, what do you? This is what we want, though. And it's a it's a bit of a test game this weekend for the Brumbies. So. Uh, big moments for them and uh, big moments on selection. Really crucial what they do and how they come off. So uh, can't wait. Can't wait to wrap it all up. And, and maybe we have a Wallaby squad next week where we do a pod and we'll obviously be digesting, going through everything there. So get through your questions if you, if indeed you uh, want to see something, um, if you pick up something interesting from, from Eddie's first squad that you want discussed, absolutely, we'll talk through it. For sure, for sure. Love to hear any feedback as ever and uh, any discussion points you want us to to break down. Uh, all right, mate, that's uh, just about an hour on the clock, I think. So uh, thanks again for your time this Tuesday morning. Um, no, it's a, a busy time ahead, but hopefully there might be a little bit of golfing around the US Open, either watching or playing uh, this week. Yeah, well, it's over, I think, in Los Angeles, uh, one of the country clubs over there. So I don't think that's great from a... Uh, watching perspective, but you'll be able to certainly watch the back nines. Yeah, it's uh, morning, so it'll be a later tee off. So I'll probably get golf through to twelve midday in the morning, which would be great. Not great if you're playing golf, but great if you're watching. Anyway, <laughs> that's um, probably for all the golf podcasts out of which there are no shortage of and uh, no shortage of topics to discuss in that sport either. All right, mate. Uh, thanks again. Uh, we'll talk to you all in seven days time. Cheers. Mm, bye.